Welcome to Moving the Needle on Wicked Problems, our podcast. Today, we are going to discuss the uprising in, Th- in Iran and what the people of Iran are going through. This is very close to my heart as I fled Iran decades ago because I didn't want to live in a place of repression and I didn't want my daughter to grow up in a society uh, like the one they have now. I still remember what it was like to cross the Turkish border from Iran. And I remember very distinctly the smell of fear in the room, our own fear, of course, but also the fear of the very, very young revolutionary guards who were searching us. This must be the very fear that protesting women and girls are feeling in Iran today. I know from this experience that even if fear paralyzes you, it also is a powerful release for courage. Absolutely, Senator. There's courage in spades. You know, brave Iranians led by women are taking to the streets to fight for their freedom. You know, they're discarding their headscarves, burning them, and sometimes even cutting off their own hair just to push back against this repressive regime. What better way then to give the women voice and the people of Iran voice than to use their own words? Sherveen Hajipur, a 25-year-old musician, created a song that has now gone viral. These are not his words that he uses, but he crowdsourced them by pulling together the sentiments and aspirations of Iran's, of Iranians. So instead of doing our regular theme music, we will play that inspiring song before we introduce our guest of today. توی کوچه رخصیدن برای ترسیدن به وقت بوسیدن برای خواهرم خواهرت خواهرامون برای تغییر مغزها که پوسیدن برای شرمندگی برای بیپولی برای حسرت یک زندگی معمولی برای کودک زبال گرد و آرزوهاش برای این اقتصاد دستوری برای این هوای آلوده برای ولی اصر و درختای فرسوده برای پیروز و اعتمال انقرازش برای سگهای بیگناه ممنوعه So to delve into this, we are speaking with Nazanin Afshin Jam McKay. Nazanin is an award-winning international human rights and democracy activist, a public speaker, and the co-founder of the organization Stop Child Executions. Welcome, Nazanin. Thank you. It's a pleasure being with you here, Senator. Nazanin, I noted in your biography that you immigrated to Canada in 1981, the exact same year that I too came Mm -hmm. to Canada from Iran. Of course, you were a child, I'm sure, at that time. What pushed your family to make the move? Well, Senator, probably the same reason why your family came to Canada. Basically, in 1979, when the Islamic Revolution happened, at that time, Khomeini came to Iran and promised the people of Iran that he'd bring freedom and he'd step aside from politics. But of course, that's not what happened. He stayed and introduced very repressive laws, draconian laws under the system, 
um, under Sharia law. And basically, uh, a lot of people were being arrested and executed. And my own father, who was a non-political man at that time, he was the manager for the Sheraton Hotel. And he was allowing business as usual. So he was allowing mingling between men and women, dancing, um, alcohol was being served, just as it has always had. And these were forbidden under the new Islamist rules. So one day the Revolutionary Guards burst in and arrested my father and put him in jail. And they wanted to give him an execution decree. So he was waiting for his trial in those kangaroo courts that were set up at the time where presiding over him would have been a judge named Khal Khali. He was a notorious judge who was known to give execution orders without even opening people's files. Um, he was known as the cat killer of Iran. And anyways, so he was going to be facing this. And my mother, through some fate of luck, had a contact that was able to get my father out on furlough just for a few days before he would face his trial. And of course, he wasn't going to wait around for that because he saw his peers being executed um, by the by the hundreds, by the thousands. So he was on the first plane ride to Spain. It was the only country that you didn't need a, a visa at the time. And then my family followed suit. And then a year later, we immigrated to Canada. So it was myself. I was only a baby. I was a, a year old, actually two years old when I came to Canada. And my sister was five or six years old and my mother. So we landed in Montreal and it was an extremely cold day. And they were told that if you stay um, there, that your nose and ears would fall off from the cold. So they, they, they asked around, they said, well, where's the warmest place in Canada? And they were told Vancouver. So we were on the next plane ride to Vancouver where I grew up. What a, what a heart-stopping story. Uh, I remember the Sheraton Hotel well, <laughs> in fact, in Tehran. Uh, used to go there for celebrations <laughs> and, and things like that. But my goodness, for your father to go through that and for your mother to have that one contact, you know, life is made up of of strange uh, instances that either uh, capture you in them or release you. So congratulations to your family. You were really young and your family must have also been in a state of shock because no one wanted to really be displaced. Nobody wants that. Uh, how, did, how, how, was, how did your family uh, get along in Canada? What was that like? Yes, well, when we first arrived, um, I think, I mean, I was a baby, so I didn't know any better, but um, my sister had a bit of a hard time starting school, jet black hair, black eyes. We're eating weird lunches that people were not familiar with Persian food. And she was, um, she was, she was bullied a little bit. Um, but then I think as time went on, our family adjusted. My, my mother joined a church group and started having exhibitions of her art. And my father was in the business and the electronics field. And, and so then things normalized and we had a pretty normal life yeah. growing up. Much like many immigrants, let's pivot now to the subject of our discussion, which is Iran. Uh, so popular protests are 
dotting the landscape. They don't seem to be letting up, which is what the regime clearly hoped. What is it like now to be a woman in Iran? Well, at this very second, to be an Iranian woman is to be equated with being brave, courageous hero. I mean, when I see those Iranian women sacrificing their life, their safety, their everything, young girls, 12, 13, 15 years old, you know, standing up to their oppressors, chanting on the streets, they are the real superheroes of our time. But if we step back, generally speaking, what it's like, what it has been for women in Iran for the last 43 years has been a, a living hell, I, I would call it. It's women have been imprisoned in this in this theocratic, tyrannical uh, system, this misogynist system for for 43 years. Um, women are regarded as being half a citizen under the law. Their testimony in front of the law is worth half of a man. So Iranian women are living in a gender apartheid state in Iran. Discriminatory laws when it comes to divorce, inheritance, custody, um, the list goes on. It's just, it's always been unfair, but I have to mention that this is not part of Iranian culture. The laws lag behind the norms. This is just a few um, extremist fundamentalists pose this on Iranian women because Iranian men counterparts, they don't want to see their women suffering under this either. And that's why you're seeing such a huge movement in Iran. It's, it's not just the women coming out, although this is a women-led revolution, but the men are supporting the women behind this. Great. Um, I'm, I'm reflecting on my time in Iran and I was free to work, to wear what I like. I mean, there were limitations Chosen. because uh, because there was the monarchy and you couldn't really be political. It's wonderful to see, uh, see you speaking out. I think Paul has a question. Oh, Paul's muted, I think. Paul is muted. Uh, yeah, I'm just trying to follow up in the sense of, um, uh, you know, it's a popular uprising. There are, is there any particular leaders that have come to the fore, any particular women? And, and you mentioned the role of men sort of supporting this. Could you sort of delve into the, the leadership that we have uh, that are seen in Iran that are taking these steps, taking these brave steps, uh, often at their own risk uh, to either be, you know, shod or otherwise? Um, who are the real leaders that are, are dealing with this uprising? To be honest with you, Paul, this is a leaderless revolution. There's not one leader that people are following. This is this is groups of people, individuals that have been repressed themselves, that have had enough, that are coming out on the streets. So it's ethnic and religious minorities that have been persecuted for so many years. It's lawyers who have defended their clients and are, are being imprisoned just for defending their clients. It's journalists who have had their mouth taped shut, not being able to freely express themselves. Um, anything they say against the regime, they're, they're imprisoned. It's um, homosexuals who can receive the death penalty 
for just being homosexual. It's the list goes on. It's environmentalists that are so ashamed with what's happening in Iran, the mismanagement of resources and the environment. It's it's um, it's animal activists. I mean, dogs there are pet pets are shot in plain sight because they're considered najes or dirty. You know, it's there. There's there's such a level of repression that this is years of oppressed, repressed people that are spilling out on the streets. And I think there's a beauty in that it's been organic and there has been no leaders. But I think now we're starting to reach a point where we need a, a little bit more guidance um, on the outside, guided by the thoughts and the wishes of the people on the inside. So you, Nazanin, you said it's a leaderless movement. Uh, it's organic, uh, and part of this leaderless movement has resulted in all kinds of voices coming to the front, including musicians. You know, I've heard a number of pieces of music, and I'm going to refer to the one we played at the beginning, mm -hmm. the piece of uh, music uh, composed by Sherveen Hajipur, and I'm just going to explain to the audience a little bit of what he says. Not the entire song that that will be too much and he he sourced these ideas from the twitter verse he, he asked iranians for what are you protesting yes. and that song says we are protesting for dancing in the alleys for breaking the taboo of kissing for my sister your sister our sister for the shame of poverty for the feeling of peace for the sun after these long nights for the girl who wished to be a boy, for women, for life, for freedom. Every time I hear the song, I hear it often. Mm -hmm. And because I understand Persian makes a difference. I go weak in my knees. Yeah. I really do. I come close to tears. What do you feel when you hear that song? Exactly like you, Senator. I Every time, like right now, even just you yes. repeating the words of Sherwin Hajipur, I, I have shivers, I have goosebumps. When I hear that song, I'm so overwhelmed with emotion. And I think everybody feels this. If you've seen the protest movements happening, this has become an anthem for the revolution that's happening in Iran. And he encapsulates so beautifully everything that Iranians have been feeling for the time that they've been repressed under this Islamic regime. And Everybody that I know that hears it, they also, they just well up with tears. It's, it's such a powerful song. I, I spoke the words of the entire song in the Senate last week, and I can tell you that even in English, which is a far less romantic and poetic language than Persian, people yes. had tears in their eyes. I, I think Paul wants to follow up with a number of questions uh, <laughs> on this and further. Yeah, I, I wanted to 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 talk a little bit about you mentioned that um, this was a leaderless uprising that people from all walks are 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 jumping in on this and they have all the different reasons as the song points out as you pointed out of why they wanted to be a part of this uprising. But then you also right at the end sort of mentioned that maybe it's time to get a little bit more organization uh, in the movement. Uh, and you've put out on Twitter sort of an organizational structure for a coalition to serve. You know, what are you thinking there and what are you looking to build there? 
Well, I'm just echoing what the people of Iran are asking. And they're saying it's time for you on the outside to help us be our voice, amplify our voice. And we've been doing that as much as we can in, in protests, in petitions, in forming small groups to, you know, help with medical advice for those that are being shot on the street and they can't go to the hospitals because regime officials are waiting to nab them at these hospitals. So there's there's different people doing different things, but they're they're looking for some more unity between the opposition on the outside, which if you follow Iranian politics, diaspora politics, there's been a lot of clashes in the past between opposition groups, even though they're all wanting the same thing, which is for this regime to end. They've all understood that there's no more room for um, reform, that that Iranians deserve what they're asking for, which is a free and democratic Iran, a constitution based on human rights, the rule of law, and um, a separation between religion and state. This is what we all want. And they want us to formalize this a bit because political leaders like Senator are probably looking for a group of people to sit down with and say, you know, what do the Iranian people want? How can we help? And there's not that unified voice, but we can form a coalition that could kind of formalize this a little bit better. There is a, a political group by the name of MEK that the vast majority of Iranians don't support. But because they're organized on the outside, they're starting to have the ear of politicians. So there needs to be an alternative to that group. And I believe that we can make it happen. Now, the organizational structure that you refer to from my tweet, it, it was, I mean, it wasn't meant to be a serious, like structured organized. It's, it was more meant to start the conversation mm -hmm. And you know, I've I've um, I've I've been reaching out to the people that I have been connected with. I've been doing this kind of work for the last twenty years, human rights work, and I've I have worked with people from the right to the left from the Iranian community. I've been working with various human rights groups, various ethnic groups, and and I recognize where we can come together and unify. And I see the strong points from different groups. Uh, so I'm hoping I can be I can be helpful in liaising some of these people so they can be more effective. Because I, I just give you an example. There was a protest rally that happened in Toronto uh, where there was 50,000 people that came out on the streets. Now, the following week, there was another protest, but I got three different posters from three different groups on the same day wanting to rally. And if they had been somehow connected, then we could have joined those forces better, been more effective and not dilute our efforts. So that's why I'm thinking there needs to be some kind of organ that helps bring us together and just be more effective. And... I think we're starting to get there. It's it's going to take a little bit of time, but we don't have time. That's the other thing that that we're lacking is one minute on the street for the Iranian people right now sacrificing themselves feels like an eternity and we need to get our act together. So true. Uh 
I can tell you this, uh, and you don't need me to tell you this, but on Parliament Hill, the support for Iran is un for the freedom of Iranians yes. is unequivocal. Um, our government has taken a few actions. You know, we've uh, put another thousand uh, IRGC members on the sanctions list. Uh, what else do you think? I mean, I mean, Canada's a middle power. We don't have the levers uh, that maybe other more powerful countries may have, but we do lead by reputation. What would you like to see the government of Canada do vis-a-vis -vis Iran? Exactly as you say, Senator, while we are a middle power and we might not have as much influence as some of the other G7 countries, we have influence. We can pressure other countries to do the right thing as well, to be on the right side of history, because I really see this as a historical moment where people are going to see, are we on the right side of history, like those that partook in bringing down the racial apartheid in South Africa, to do the same for Iran's gender apartheid, to be there to support Iran's freedom movement. So what I'd like to see, first of all, for Canada to do further, they've done a great job, they've taken great first steps. I would love to see them put the IRGC in its entirety on the terrorist list. Mm -hmm. I would like them to reach out to their G7 partners and encourage them to um, ask their Iranian uh, diplomats and ambassadors to go home, to go back to Iran to be recalled and to recall their own ambassadors to their countries because that would be sending the message that this is an illegitimate government that does not represent the voices of the people and that these countries are no longer willing to do business as usual. They're no longer to have diplomatic and economic ties with Iran. We have to step it up a notch and apply Magnitsky Act by um, freezing assets and um, creating travel bans so more Iranian officials and their families not to enter Canada, not to bring their dirty laundered money, these kleptocrats that are bringing stolen money from Iranian people and abroad also in be engaging in terrorist activities. So, so glad you mentioned uh, dirty money, uh, kleptocrats. Uh, I'm well connected with the Iranian community in, in, in Toronto and I keep hearing about the the loads of dirty money, condos being bought, equity shares, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, yes, we have the Magnitsky law, but we also have another tool, which is which I played a role in, uh, which enables the government of Canada to not just freeze the assets, but to seize them, and to redeploy them to help the victims. In the case of Iran, the government of Canada could take. A number of these sanctioned assets and repurpose them with due process and accountability and transparency to a human rights organization that supports women's rights uh, in Iran. Uh, what do you do? You see, do you see any political risks or downsides of Canada doing something like this? Absolutely not. I mean, why wouldn't they? They're, the Canadian electorate are there to represent the Canadians and Iranian Canadians are asking for this. So they need to listen to the Iranian Canadians and go forward. And I would love to hear more about it from you, Senator, because I know you've been championing 
meaning this. And um, I've spoken to international human rights lawyer Payam Akhavan, and he said, while it would be difficult, it is possible. It's not impossible. So it, 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 I, know of, I know that class action suits have been filed in the past, especially in the United States. But um, I would love to see further how the idea that you're proposing could could materialize. Uh, it, it is certainly in the reach of the Canadian government. And in a way, it is it is the, the, the case for uh, repurposing assets back to the victims of the regime in Iran. The case is crystal clear yeah. uh, and I believe Canada should launch a test case and I'm advocating for to the Minister of Global Affairs to actually reach out to the sanctions list and pick a number of people with significant assets and the government can do all this. So mm -hmm. we're hoping for the test case and I'm certainly hoping your organic coalition will also, you know, these are these are tools that we have and if we do this, yes. others will follow. Um, and I think that's the hope. Um, I'm hoping that part of that, just on the same vein, um, I'm hoping that the victims of the flight PS752, mm -hmm. their families would join in on this because I know that they they completely support what you're saying, Senator. Um, they would they are the victims, and as among so many others, but they are the victims, and they they should receive the compensation that they deserve. Uh, there are a bunch of other ideas, and let me test a few out with you. You've already mentioned, you know, withdrawing um, uh, diplomats from Iran as one uh, example. Yes. And, and another proposal that was put forward by someone I spoke to yesterday is to remove the Islamic Republic from the UN Commission on the Status of Women. Absolutely. I'm actually part of the coalition of women who brought forward um, mm -hmm. the petition that was signed by world leaders and um, Hillary Clinton and Michelle Obama and um, public figures like Oprah Winfrey and Malala. And um, I approached um, Foreign Minister Melanie Jolie, who kindly signed the petition. Christia Freeland signed the petition. Um, we have a whole network of strong female leaders who have gotten behind this um, petition. And the brainchild was actually a friend of mine, a uh, Iranian-Canadian philanthropist who has wanted to remain anonymous because of safety issues, but she's the one that funded that whole campaign and carried that, um, uh, that idea forward. And we've been working alongside um, UN Watch, Hillel Neuer from UN Watch, to try to draft a resolution to bring forward to ECOSOC so mm. that they can finally table it and this can become a reality. We're just waiting um, a few days. I believe uh, the, the ones that are making the motion are Canada, the United States and New Zealand. So we're just waiting on our tippy toes to see how the rest of the ECOSOC members will vote. We have a general idea of just based on their past records, how they will vote. And I hope we carry that through. And in the last few days, we've been pressuring those who are kind of generally on the middle that either abstain or 
you don't know where their vote's going to go to to focus on them and to pressure them to, to go in the right direction. So before I hand the next question over to Paul, let me ask you a question. Uh, you are safe in Canada and your family is in Canada, but I know Iranian families, they're extended families. Do you have any concerns? I do have extended family in Iran and they're aware of my activities. I mean, to some extent, yes, I am safe in Canada, but no Iranian who is vocal on the issues is really safe. I mean, there are agents and spies in Canada. I've identified some before. I've been, I've had my life threatened before. Um, some of the major leaders like Masi Alinejad, who started the White Wednesday campaign, where she's the one that encouraged women to send videos of them taking off their scarves on the streets of Iran. She's had an assassination attempt outside her home in New City. She has full-time security now. I mean, there has been assassinations on the outside. So kind of what you have to say to yourself is there's an assumed risk. But if those people on the inside of Iran are risking their lives, they're facing bullets, they're being imprisoned, they're being tortured. Women in the prisons and outside are being raped by these besiege forces. They're willing to do that for freedom. Us on the outside, who there is much less risk, close to zero, it's the least we can do to speak out. Well said. You know, one of the things that that Iran has also done, and I guess it's not surprising, is that they've they've decided to become, you know, supporters not only just, you know, through words, but through military of the Russian aggression in Ukraine. Um, you know, they've sent hardware, they've sent drones. Uh, there seems to be a continuous line of technology being sent to to Russia. Obviously, Russia, you know, has had big losses there, so they need, you know, need everything they can get, I guess, to continue their brutality. Um, what do you think can be done? And you've sort of talked about this already, but as the international community wakes up to this new sort of axis of power, right? You know, we had... You know, Russia now, you know, being backed by a small number of states with Iran included, uh, and then the rest of the world, Europe, uh, you know, trying to 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 deal with this situation. What 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 should we be thinking going into this new sort of axis of power that that's that's uh, emerging over the last few months? You've said it correctly, Paul. I mean, Iran is the biggest um, state sponsor of terror. They give. I don't billions of dollars in um, funds to terrorist proxies, Hamas, Hezbollah, um, Houthis, and training people from the Assad army. They're now training, as you said, in Russia and providing drones and military um, uh, arms. And so the international community needs to understand that this regime poses a threat to everybody. This is not just an Iranian domestic issue, like, oh, we're supporting, you know, 
the, the women that are chanting for their freedom. Oh, those poor women that are on the streets, you know, I feel bad for them, but there's nothing we can do. Or, or some people don't even care what's happening, you know, across the way, but they have to understand that this is something that affects them. If Iran reaches a point where they achieve nuclear weapons, then it will be that much harder to bring a downfall to this regime. And frankly, it's, it's scary to think of these fundamentalists um, with nuclear cap capabilities. So people have to change their paradigm. They have to understand they can't have one foot in the camp of the regime and one foot on the side with the freedom-loving Iranians. Because I think at this stage, a lot of European countries are not taking the, like they're taking a gamble, like, is this going to succeed? Well, then we want to be with the Iranian people. But if it doesn't, then we have to negotiate with these regime officials. But they have to be very clear right now, who do you stand beside? Because you can't be on in both camps. And they have to understand that if they choose the path forward to a free and democratic Iran led by these freedom-loving people, they won't have to face a nuclear threat. They This will bring stability to the entire region because Iran, democratic Iranians will not be funding terrorist factions. They won't be providing drones to Russia to attack on innocent Ukrainians. These are the kinds of issues that I'm hoping will come out in less than two weeks at the Halifax International Security Forum, where the focus is mostly on Ukraine, but they've carved out a section for Iran. And I've been doing my best to try to bring some of the emerging leaders, if you want to call them that, some of them don't want to be called that at this stage, but they're the ones that have had an active voice in the community. I've, I've reached out to Masi Alinejad. I've reached out to um, Mr. Reza Pahlavi. I've reached out to Hamid Ismailun, the, the leader of the Families for Flight PS752. I've reached out to Nobel Peace Laureate Shirin Abadi. I was dreaming for seeing them on stage together. Um, and I'm just waiting for their replies now. Uh, some of them are hesitant, but I mean, this is a forum that has the ear of the international community. They are the policy makers in that room. They're the people, there are 10 congressional senators um, from the United States there. There's ambassadors from different countries, NATO members, um, generals. I mean, this is the, the place that they'll have the ear and I'm, and I'm just waiting to see if they're willing to accept our invitation. And if not, then we'll, we'll, um, we'll invite other very yes. high profile people. Absolutely. I, I really want to wish you the very good luck in this because I think you found a moment in time and a strategic uh, lever uh, with uh, using the Halifax Security Forum to speak to the rest of the world. Um, you know, I when I think about revolutions that are successful, uh, there's always a move, an unstoppable movement of people. 
But there's also another factor, and it is the military. In the end, a revolution is successful when the military steps aside. Think about the revolution in 1978 in Iran. Uh, that's exactly what happened. And Arab Spring, exactly the same, maybe even going back to the French Revolution. The military steps aside and lets the will of the people speak. Talk to us a little bit about that context in Iran. Uh, yes. You know, is the military still the power it was or, or has all the power shifted to the IRGC? And, and is there any sense of optimism that yes. the armed forces will support the people of Iran? When you're asking this question, what comes immediately to my mind is a video I saw of a girl. She couldn't be older than nine years old screaming through a fence to the Iranian army, screaming in Persian to them, saying, you know, you're supposed to be protecting us. You're not bound to listen to the regime officials telling you to command you to do different. You're here to protect the people. Shame on you. We're hoping that there will be those cracks and fissures where people, those in the Iranian army, those in the Revolutionary Guard, those in the Basij will stand down. They'll understand that they are killing their own brothers and sisters, their own mothers and sons and daughters. I mean, so we've started to see some of those fissures. We've even have um, people that defected years ago that are helping those on the inside to channel and and go and um, kind of go away from the rule, the the commands happening from the RAGC. They're giving tips like this is the way they they operate. This is where you pull out a line like just acts of civil disobedience. They're teaching the way to the Iranian people. So there is room for that. But you're right, the IRGC has complete control of the country. And I think a way how we manage around that is by ensuring those that do not have blood on their hands, the ones that are giving these directives, they we will give them, um, you know, a deadline to defect and they won't face prosecution to that level okay. if they defect now. I think that's a way of going because I think a lot of them are scared that if they let up that the next round will give them the execution decrees. But if they're insured that they will have some kind of safety or that they will have a job in the new Iran, mm -hmm. that they'll be more willing to stand down. So but of course, those that are at the top echelons, they do need to face justice in an international court because so you're, they you're, they have committed crimes against humanity. So I, I, I your your uh, I think uh, uh, your ideas are reminding me of South Africa, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Yes. So um, absolutely. So my final question, and I think I know the answer to that, but I think our audience would like you uh, to hear from you. Do you have hope for the future of Iran, Iranian women and Iranian men? <laughs> Just like your name, I have a lot of omid, a lot of 
hope for the people of Iran. As I said, when I see those young girls, the bravery and courage they're exhibiting, their leadership, I know that Iran will be in the right hands. I've been, I've been advocating this for over 15 years. I have had so much belief in the Iranian people because they are such spirited, educated, strong figures. They will not take repression. It's taken a long time just because of the brutality of the regime, but they will not stand for it anymore. They are sacrificing everything. And it is the beginning of the end. There is no turning back. This regime will not succeed. This will be the people's Iran. Thank you so much, Nazanin. This has been absolutely terrific and so timely, and your insights into Iran will, I think, help our audience understand uh, not just the context, but also join you in, in your journey of hope. Thank you to our listeners. And if you have questions or topics, or in fact, people you'd like us to interview, please don't hesitate to reach out to me either through Twitter or my Senate account. We would love to hear from you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Senator.